you to take your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. We'll focus on verses 12 through 26 this morning. I'm excited to, after three weeks off, I'm excited to preach again. I'm excited to jump back into Genesis. It's been three and a half years, and we're going to, I guess you could say, start or restart this series. We left um, in Genesis 11 way back in 2012 and um, said goodbye to our friend Abraham there, and we're going to pick it up here in chapter 25 and think about um, his descendants. And so we're calling this this series um, The God of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Those are the main stories that we're going to see, especially Jacob and Joseph. Those are kind of the, the crux of, of what we're going to look at um, in the coming weeks and months. I don't know how long it'll take us, but I think we'll stretch sometime into October walking through this. Um, but I, I'm really excited to look at these passages together. So what I want to do this morning is kind of um, bring us up to speed with the book of Genesis. So give some some background up to the point of where we're at in chapter 25. Um, and then we will we will get into these verses in 12 through 26, though we probably won't cover everything in there. We'll kind of pick that back up and finish up chapter 25, Lord willing, next Sunday. So before we look, let me just kind of get us into to the book of Genesis. So, so Genesis is a story of beginnings. That's, in fact, what the word means. It has to do with beginnings. It's the beginning of the world, um, of creation itself, of human beings. It also marks the beginning of sin and of God's redemptive plan of salvation. It shows the, the formation of the world. It shows the formation of, of God's people. Um, and it's, it, it also shows the breaking of God's world. And it shows, in, in really a palpable sense, the brokenness of God's people. So it's occupied with these amazing themes, the, the creation of the world, um, the origin of evil, but then it also gets down into the nitty-gritty of people's hearts and minds and, and just the, the sinful, foolish things that we do. It's really a masterpiece. If you were to sit down and read it all together, you could do this. You could sit down and read it, taking maybe four hours. That's what my audio Bible says. You could do it this afternoon. And if you did that, you'd see a significant break happen between chapter 11 and chapter 12. So just the, the big picture of the book of Genesis, chapter, chapters 1 through 11, talk about the, the creation of the world, about the entrance of evil into the world, and then the spread of that evil throughout the world. So various solutions arise as to how this evil is going to be dealt with in the world. Um, but we slowly see that those solutions just don't seem to be working out. So you see Abel rise up and he is killed by Cain. You see this guy Lamech who is just filled with pride. You see the destruction of the of the world with the flood, and you think there's hope, but then Noah gets drunk right after that. Uh, you see the the pride of of the Tower of Babel, and we start asking the question near the end of chapter 11: How is God going to bring blessing into this world? How how is He going to restore things back to the way that they were meant to be? There's this this tension. There's an answer that's given in chapter 3, verse 15, and it's sort of cryptic and mysterious, and it talks about this promised seed, a descendant of, of Eve, who's going to come and crush the, the head of, of Satan and bring hope into the world. But up until this point, as we look at Eve's descendants, they all seem to be falling and failing in different ways. And so with this broad view of the world and sort of the destruction that, ha- that, that is happening, 
we slowly zoom in at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 on one guy and on one family. And it's the man Abram, who is later known as as Abraham. And Genesis 12 through 50, rather than this big view of the whole world, focus in on one family and on the people that follow from him. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, these are, are the main characters. And they talk about God's covenant, God's promises to Abraham and how uh, they would pass from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob and then on to the people of Israel and then on to the, the ends of the earth. The story of these men, they're called the patriarchs, has to do with the, the they're the forefathers. And their story is, is a magnificent one. It's full of the, the wonder of all of God's goodness. But it's also a very human story. And we will be surprised at the shortcomings and the sins that go with with being children of Adam. We've studied the life of Abraham. We know about his weaknesses and about his failure. And the family of Abraham is, in a word, very dysfunctional. They could have their own reality show in modern day. Uh, We pick up the story with with Isaac, and we see things that we know from our stories. We see uh, crazy things, stress in marriages. We see parents who are playing favorites, and that causes issues. We see people lying to get what they want. We find brothers who deceive each other and get so mad at each other that they want to kill each other. We see people manipulating others, sisters who pridefully make fun of their sister. We see a daughter who steals from her father. We see a man who actually wrestles with with God himself. And that's just Isaac and his sons. We haven't even gotten in to Jacob and his children and that whole thing with Joseph. But in the midst of all of this, the dirt and the grime of, of the human condition, we see God working he's he's still there he's bringing beauty out of all these these ashes he's turning evil into good in fact that's sort of the culmination in chapter 50 with the the words of joseph what does he say to his brothers who sold him into slavery he says you guys meant this all for evil but god has turned it for good in some sense that's what the whole book of genesis is all this evil and god just keeps turning it for good turning it for blessing so the story of the descendants of abraham that we're going to look at over these weeks and months is a story that should fill us with hope. It it fills us with hope because God can use broken, messed up people like you and like me. Yes, you are broken and messed up and me too. All right. And we have to admit that. So determine right now, as we go through this series, that your, that, that your judgment and the scrutiny of your application from this passage is going to be most pointedly arrowed at your own heart because the story of Isaac is going to mean very little to us unless we see Isaac in us until we are going we are ready to admit that we are mama's boys who manipulate others to get what we want then Jacob will be of no value to us until we recognize that we're always fighting to be loved by others more than resting in the love of God then Leah will make no sense to us until we acknowledge that the hatred that others have towards us and the way our families and friends have hurt us and scarred us, until we accept that, then the story of Joseph and his brothers will not mean anything to us. We won't understand why he weeps when they come back to him. Until we enter into each of these men and women and their stories and see that they had feet of clay and hearts of stone, we're not going to be blown away by God's love for them. And not only his love for them, but his, his, his blessing to them and inviting them to be a part of what he's doing in the world. 
because the, the God of, of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Joseph is, is our God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he turns evil into good. And he uses men and women like you and like me who are broken and who sin. But those who are willing to come and repent and believe continually. He uses us in his great plan. So Genesis is about a family, a dysfunctional family, as all families are. That family and its descendants. In fact, another way, you've got that two-part outline of Genesis 1 through 11 and then Genesis 12 through 50. But another way to break up the book are these, there are things that are, a theme that goes throughout 12 headings that are spaced throughout the book. The first one's kind of unique and it's Genesis 1, 1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and it tells the story of how God did that. But then in, in chapter 2, verse 4, there's a phrase that begins that says, these are the generations of, or this is the account of the heavens and the earth. And what follows after that is an explanation of, of what happened in those early days. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, it talks about these are the generations of Adam. And what follows then is Adam's story and the story of his descendants. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. And 11.10 begins the gener- says, these are the generations of Noah's son, Shem. And the story of Abraham begins in chapter 11, verse 27, with this statement. These are the generations of Terah. And Terah was Abraham's father. And that account goes from chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to chapter 25, verse 11, which ends with the death of Abraham. And so it tells the story of Abraham. And it's, it's in the story of Abraham that we first hear God's unique promise about the blessing that's going to be passed to his son and to his, his grandson and so on. It's a promise that God's going to give Abraham and his descendants a land of their own. He's going to, he's going to bless them with countless descendants, as many as the, the sand on the seashore. He's going to bless them and they will be a blessing to all others. God comes to Abraham at least four times and says, Abraham, your family is the family that I'm going to use. I'm going to use your family to bless the whole world. I'm going to use a seed that comes from you to rescue the world from all this chaos and all this this death that sin has brought into the world. And so running from from that story of Abraham all the way through chapter 50 of, of Genesis is how God is preserving and protecting this seed, how he's going to bring blessing through this line. And there's all these threats to that seed about maybe it's not going to happen and how God preserves that and brings salvation about. So that's the, the generations of Terah. And in our passage today, we find two more of these statements. These, these are the generations of statements. And so let's look at this together. Genesis 25, and we'll look at verse 12 and go through 26. It says there, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. We're going to focus particularly on verses 19 through 26 this morning. Um, but let me just sort of point out the major sections right here at the beginning so you kind of see what's, what the flow of this is. In verses 19 through 21, we see the miraculous provision of the promised seed. So 19 through 21 is the miraculous provision of the promised seed. In verses 22 through 23, we see confusion about the struggle and clarity through God's promise. Confusion about the struggle and clarity through God's promise. And then in 24 through 26, we see there's a description of a unique birth and the foreshadowing of their ongoing struggle. So 24 to 26, a unique birth and a foreshadowing of their ongoing struggle. That's sort of a a simple outline for for what this looks like. Um, That's our general structure. And we're going to kind of dive in here and swim around a little bit. More or less, we're actually probably going to dip our toe into it uh, because we're going to come back to a lot of this later. Um, but So if you're looking for clear structure points, that's probably as clear as it's going to get right now. Okay, But we're going to get in here, and I, I think there's such just a real simple application that came out as I was studying this week, and I had wanted to cover more, but I said, this is enough. We just need to sit in this this week. But did you see the, the first... Um, Generation statement back there in verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael. Verse 12 speaks of Ishmael and calls him Abraham's son. But notice the detail that's given in that verse. He was Abraham's son, but born, uh, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. So th- there's an interesting story back there, isn't there? Well, one we can't fully go into, but it's it's noted here, and, it, and the reader is supposed to understand that. So let me just give you a simple breakdown of it. We should know that God had promised to bless elderly Abraham and, and elderly Sarah with a son who would become the seed of this great nation and would bless all other nations. But what do they do when they hear that? They doubt. They, they don't really know what's going to happen. And after some years, and Sarah recognizing that she is past the age of, of bearing children, in chapter 16 of Genesis, she says to Abraham, take my servant Hagar and have a child through her. This would have been common practice in that day, but the action here reveals a lack of faith. God has made a promise, and Abraham and Sarah doubt that God will do it in this specific way. And so they take matters into their own hands and have a child through Hagar. And this child is born, which is always a blessing to have a child. But the repercussions of that decision and of this child are disastrous and continue even to this day. 
Um, Sarah gets jealous in that moment. She treats Hagar so bad that Hagar leaves and flees into the desert. You've got to be treated pretty bad to run away into the desert where you have no real hope of survival. And as she's about to die, God comes to her with this beautiful message and says, Hagar, I see you and, and I know you. And the angel of the Lord says to Hagar in chapter 16, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 17, God comes and promises uh, Abraham again that he's going to have a son. And, and, and Abraham says, Oh God, that Ishmael might live before you. He says, God, can't Ishmael be the fulfillment of this promise? Because, again, he doesn't think that God can do this. But God says, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now, why do we need to know all this? Okay, because in in verses 12 through 18, what's going on here is that that Moses, as the author, is sort of tying up the loose ends of the story of Ishmael. And he's showing God's faithfulness to Abraham and to Hagar and to Ishmael and to his words. He's saying what God said would happen, happen. God can be trusted. So you see the 12 princes there in, in chapter 25, verse 16, that were predicted um, way back in chapter 16, or in chapter um, 17. We, we see that they, they were probably heads of some nomadic tribes, Bedouin tribes, and it fulfills another promise made to Abraham that he would be uh, the, the father of nations and kings, that they would come from Abraham, and that happens here with Ishmael. We see, Ab- we see Ishmael blessed with 137 years of life, and then he dies but he was this wild donkey of a man. He was a wanderer. He was a, a fighter. And he was against all of his kinsmen. But in showing God's faithfulness, the author is also tying up these loose ends because Ishmael is not the seed of promise. And so there's a sense in which Ishmael in his story has said, okay, we've dealt with that. Now let's move on. Because the one that we're really focused on is Isaac. Because Isaac, he is the seed of promise. Ishmael gets verses. Isaac gets chapters because this is the important. We're tracing the promise that God has made. God has chosen that Abraham would have Isaac and Isaac would be the son of promise. So we look at this next generation and we're again thinking about this preservation. Can God bring order to chaos? Can, or will Abraham's seed be, be snuffed out? The line continues, we see. It says there in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Oh, there's a whole other story there, isn't it? How did Abraham father Isaac and the beauty of that? And even the threat that came to Isaac when God said, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him on the mountain. And God preserved him there. But we see that the line continues. And the story moves on away from Abraham and it moves to Isaac. In verse 20, it prepares us to trace the promise through him. It says that he took a wife. Her name was Rebecca. There's another great story from chapter 24. How did Isaac meet Rebecca? And, and that whole scene of God's providence providing a wife for Isaac. 
But the promise is to continue through Isaac. And right away, right after we see, we are introduced to Isaac, we see a threat. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. Isn't this often the threat that we find? Isaac's wife could not have children. What's the promise for Abraham? The promise is that he will have countless descendants, that his seed will be a blessing to everyone. And how many descendants does Abraham have right now in this line of promise? One, Isaac. And can Isaac's wife have children? No. What do you do in this moment? There's there's question, God, what are you doing? Again, the same process. What's what's Isaac going to do? Is he going to take Rebecca's servant as a wife and have a child through her? Is this going to be another Hagar-Ishmael situation? What does verse 21 tell us? It says there, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. What does Isaac do? He prays. You know, Isaac, we're going to watch him fail miserably. But here in this moment, we got a lot to learn from him. He prays for his wife. At the end of Genesis 24, we're told that Isaac loved his wife. It's the first statement in all of Scripture of love between a married couple. Isaac loved his wife. And he shows that love here because he prays for her. And the patriarchs mess up. Abraham has multiple wives. Jacob's going to do the same thing. Isaac is faithful to Rebecca here. And he prays for her. It's not just love for his wife, though, is it? It's faith in God. His wife is barren, and he knows that the only way that this can be solved, the only person that can solve this problem, is God. So he prays. And we're told in the exact same verse that God grants his prayer. We later see, actually, that this is a two-for-one prayer, right? He gets not just one son, but two out of this deal. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Abraham prayed. God heard his prayer. Until we see the backstory of verse 20 and verse 26. Verse 20, Isaac was how old when he married Rebekah? 40. How old was he in verse 26 when his children were born? 60. So kids, how old, How many years between uh, when the children were born and when Isaac and Rebekah first got married? So 60 minus 40 is 20. Yeah, so 20 years we're talking here. It's one verse, 20 years. So we started this series, we ended this series in 2012, and we're picking it up here in 2016. We'd have to go like at least 16 more years if we wanted to do this in chronological order to wait before these, these children were born. This is a long period of time. But he, he prays. It, it, it's the statement there in verse 21 makes us think that prayer is, is the simple, immediate solution to our problems. But rather, prayer is the, the consistent sacrifice of faith that Isaac comes and he offers to God. Year after year. Prayer is how Isaac puts his faith into action. He doesn't do it through some human effort, but through reliance on God. And he prays for 20 years. Just think about those years. How many times... Had Rebecca wept on his shoulder? How many times had there been some sort of hope followed by disappointment? How many times had Isaac given up and then said, Lord, I, I believe, just to help my unbelief in this moment? And maybe he thought, you know, my mom was 90 when she had me, so there's still hope. 
you know, if God could provide a ram on the mountain, he can provide me with a, a child. If, if God could get me a wife, he can get me a child. If God promised to my father Abraham that, that he would become a great nation, then we will have this child. I wonder, you know, Abraham, it's not all chronological. Abraham's still alive. He's around, I think it's at least for 15-ish years with, with um, Isaac's sons. Abraham's still around, and I wonder if Abraham is just encouraging Isaac in this moment. You know, don't do what I did. <laughs> Keep trusting God. Abraham's quiet faith that has matured over the years says, Isaac, just keep trusting. God will do what he says he will do. And that faith of his father stabilized his son. You know, we live in an age of of immediacy, don't we? I mean, I want it and I want it now. Fast food, high-speed internet. I can order something online today and have it on my doorstep tomorrow. That's amazing. You could Google... Or ask Siri a question right now, and you can have the answer in seconds. And we've been trained just within our culture to expect things to happen now. I want answers now. But if faith is like food, then it kind of dries out in the microwave. It doesn't really mature in the microwave. It takes a crock pot for faith, you know? You know how about, let's think about a better food. How about barbecue? You know, if you want good barbecue, you don't slap it on the grill for five minutes aside, do you? You, you wake up at like 5 a.m. and you take the pork shoulder and you put it on the grill. And how do you cook it? Low and slow. <laughs> and that's when it's good because it takes time for all of the, the juices and everything to, to form and for it to, to be what it's supposed to be. That's what prayer is like, low and slow. Prayer, prayer is an act of faith and lingering in prayer builds faith. It cries out in the midst of the trouble and it says, I still believe and I am learning how to believe God. Why did God do this? Why 20 years? I think one of the answers has to be to build faith in this couple, but also to to glorify God. When Isaac is born, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. Maybe not as crazy as Sarah having a child. I mean, that was pretty amazing. But it still is a miracle. It's obvious that God has done it and that he deserves the glory. And, and part of his plan here in generation two is to say, listen, I didn't just start with Abraham and now I'm letting you guys take over control. I am still the one that's fulfilling this promise. I am still the one that will provide the seed. And so they wait. And when they find out, you, you know, Rebecca is, is pregnant, what does Isaac do? I mean, does he say, wow, we finally did it? He said, how lucky we are. No, he hits his knees and he praises God because he knows God has done this. God gets the glory for this. Isaac stands forth and he says to us, stand firm, leaning in faith on the gift of prayer. We're so tempted to give up hope, aren't we? Our faith is so weak. Um, You know, maybe it's a sin. And, and you've just struggled with this sin for years. You've never had victory over it. It's your anger. It's, it's your lust. It's your anxiety. Your despair. I just say keep, keep laboring in prayer. Keep asking God to help. 20 years from now, you might look back and say, I've, I've struggled with that. It's not even an issue anymore for me. Maybe it's not a sin, but maybe it's some sort of sorrow that you just can't shake. It grips you all the time. 
Keep asking for peace. Keep pleading with God for joy. Know that there's something happening. He's doing something. Even though you can't see it. You know, there's desires in our hearts, maybe for a job or for a friend or for a home or for a spouse, for a ministry, for children, for for health. And we just have to keep coming to God, keep laboring in prayer over the long haul. Parents, let's not give up praying for our kids. It's easy to throw up our hands and say, I'm done with this. When all hope seems lost, keep leaning on God. Grace Fellowship Church, let's not give up praying for the lost. Let's not give up praying for our community. How long have we been here? Four years? It's nothing. It's nothing. We need to pray for your neighbors. Pray for your friends. Have you heard the story of George Mueller praying? Maybe you have. Let me remind you of it. He wrote this. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. I wish I could just say that about one prayer request, don't you? Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. One down, four to go, right? I thanked God and prayed for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. Where I found this story from, it says these two remained unconverted. Thirty-six years later, he wrote that the two, the other two who were sons of his um, of, of one of Mueller's friends were still not converted. And he wrote this, but I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. <laughs> and in 1897, which was 52 years later, after he had begun to pray for them daily, without interruption, these two men finally became Christians. And by that time, Mueller was dead. His prayers went on past even his own life. What do we learn from Isaac? Let me give you three things. Number one, persevere in prayer. Persevere. When faced with the impossible, let's not trust the work of our own hands, but the work that we do on our knees. Let's not labor in our strength, but let's labor with our souls. Let's fast. Let's let's pray. Let's plead with God. And let's do it over the long haul. You know, sometimes it's two hours. Sometimes it's two days, sometimes it's two years, sometimes it's 20 years, sometimes it's 52 years and we're dead and gone and God answers prayer. But time in prayer, it's never wasted, is it? When we're discouraged and we're disheartened, I think we maybe should hear the voice of Isaac coming to us and say, has it been 20 years yet? Okay, come back to me after 20 years and then we can talk. So persevere in prayer. Find the fruit of faith. That's the second thing. Find the fruit of faith. As we pray, as we wait, let's take heart that, you know, we might not have that specific thing that we want, but God is giving us what we need. And what do we need? We need faith. That's what prayer does. It builds faith in us. If God had answered Isaac's prayer after 20 days, Isaac's faith would have not matured. But after 20 years, he became a man who truly trusted God. Not perfectly, we're going to see, but he did trust him. And so let's always thank God for the faith that he's given us in greater and greater measure as we depend on him. Even if he doesn't give us what we're asking for, he is training us in faith. It's hard to see faith growing in us, isn't it? 
Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite songwriters, talks about this slow change, and he uses the picture of mountains on the ocean floor. How, how unseen to us there are mountains that are growing, whether through volcanic action or seismic shifts, something is happening underneath the ocean floor, and no one sees it, but they're slowly rising, rising, rising to the surface. Here's what he says. There are mountains. He sings it better than I'm going to say it, but, you know. There are mountains, mountains on the ocean floor. They're rising from the deep where no one ever sees. There are mountains. that they're, they're hidden there beneath the waves. They're moving up so slow. No one ever knows. There's a molten heart of stone that is waiting to explode. Only God can see it grow. Sometimes we can't even see it grow, but it's there. It's growing as we labor in prayer. So as you persevere in prayer, find the fruit of faith. Realize God is building faith in us as we seek him. And then the third thing is give God glory. Give God glory. Let's give God glory when he answers prayer. How often we pray for things and the answer comes, but because we haven't persevered, we neglect to honor God and to thank him for it. I've had that happen. I've prayed for something simple. It happens the next day. And it's a week later that I say, oh, yeah, I prayed for that. And now I have it. This is the benefit of, of the simple task of writing things down, of having a prayer journal. And maybe it's not even a prayer journal. Get yourself a, an Expo marker, right, dry erase marker, and put it on a mirror or something. And you just see it every day. And then when you have the chance to erase it because God has answered it, then we give thanks God for, to God for that. We've got to remind ourselves because we forget. And, and not only for ourselves, but this is why we pray with one another. This is why we, we talk to one another. This is why I tell you I don't just keep my, my prayer requests within my own heart. I was talking to someone this week, and I was thinking about the, the concept of an unspoken prayer request. I guess there's a time and a place for that. But let me be honest, an unspoken prayer request sometimes is just the guys for, I just don't want to tell people how hard things are. I don't want to tell people that I'm struggling. But how can we rejoice with your unspoken prayer request if I don't even know what you what I'm praying for? Let, let's tell other people what we're struggling with. Let's have them pray with us so then when it happens I can say, God answered this prayer. Let's rejoice. Let's give glory to him together. Persevere in prayer. Find the fruit of faith. Give God glory. Well, 21 is kind of brief, in part because Rebecca's barrenness is not the biggest concern. It's not the biggest threat. Rather, the conflict that's in her womb is the biggest problem. Rebecca is pregnant, and something is going on in there. There's a violence in her womb that she can't explain. Now, I've never been pregnant, but from what I hear, that whole kicking of the bladder thing is not fun, right? And, and for Rebecca, there's pain with this pregnancy before she's even giving birth. And I'm sure all the ladies in the camp, when she said, this is really painful, they're like, yeah, that's what it's like to be pregnant. And, but, but there's something unique, and Rebecca knows it. Something's going on. Rebecca's not a weakling, remember? She's the one that got all that water for the camels. I mean, this is a, a strong woman. And this pain is so intense that she, she despairs. She says, if, this, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Why did I pray for 20 years for this? It seems like some sort of omen that something terrible is going to come. From this pregnancy. What does she do then? So she went. To inquire of the Lord. Verse 22. She inquires of the Lord. I don't know exactly what this would look like. It could have looked like her going to. Someone. um, To an individual. A spiritual leader of some kind. And he would give her this prophecy. Or this oracle. 
It could be a dream that she had where God revealed this truth to her. But before we look at the the answer, and in fact, you know, you can look at the clock and realize we're not going to really look at the answer. Um, but we'll see it next time. But I, I think what we need to, to look at this, and what I just really saw in conjunction with Isaac's persistent prayer, is that we're reminded by Rebecca that, that in the midst of, of confusion and the violence of life, she goes to the Lord. She goes to God and asks what's going on. When we can't make sense of things, we are to seek God's wisdom. We do this in prayer, but we also do this through his word. So she goes to someone who gives her an oracle, a, a prophecy. And that is, in a sense, what, what God's word is for us. That when life doesn't make sense, when things are confusing, that the place to go is, yes, we pray, but we go and we look at his word. We see what he says to us. We do it in prayer. We come to his word, but we also do it through the graces that are in this church. Brothers and sisters, let, let's all just admit right now that, that life is, is, is a little hard, right? I mean, life is difficult. The struggles, and yeah, someone has harder struggles than you, but your struggles are your struggles, and they're hard, and they're difficult. And we can all agree on that generally. We could all nod our head and say, yes, life is hard. But what are we going to do when despair and confusion and pain come into our life? Where do we turn? We should turn to prayer, and we should turn to God's word, but are we willing also to humble ourselves like Rebecca did? She went to someone and said, this doesn't make sense. I'm confused. I'm in pain. Rebecca was willing to go there and say, help me make sense of all this. What about you? What about me? I mean, are we willing to do that? That's, that's, that's humbling. But I think Rebecca gives us, as God's people, permission to say, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I, I, to be confused. To be scared in life. You know, religion, it wants us to put on this guise that we have everything together. That's what religion always does. Look at the Pharisees. They had it all figured out, didn't they? Not at all. But we don't have everything figured out. And, and, and the church should be a place where it's totally okay to not be okay. I mean, that's what the gospel is, isn't it? It's coming to God and saying, I can't, I can't save myself. And so this should be a place where we all at least have recognized that. And so it would make sense that we could come to each other and say, I don't have everything figured out and I can't save myself. I need some help. We come to this place, we should give each other permission to grieve and to struggle and to question. And as we do that, as we have conversations, then we do what happens here. We point each other to the truth. We help people see the truth. Not necessarily right away. You know, sometimes we just need to sit with others and grieve and see the pain and relate to that pain. We can use Bible verses as a band-aid sometimes, and sometimes we just need to weep and to grieve with people, and then we start telling people the truth. Rebecca's told the truth. That's what happens in verse 23, and we're going to save that. We've got a, uh, It's a tough one to understand. I invite you to look at it and try to see what's going on there, but also I think we've got enough to chew on, and we're out of time. <laughs> But before we close, let me just do this. Let's zoom out for a second, okay? Let's, let's, let's give Jesus some glory. Let's zoom out and see how the seed goes beyond Abraham and Isaac. The miraculous birth of these uh, men are, are the beginning of a series of births that stretch all the way in 
to the book of Matthew. And when Jesus is born, the lineage is traced all the way back here to Abraham. Why? To show that he is the fulfillment of all of these things. And God works in much the same way in Jesus' time as he did in Isaac. He works through a miraculous and unexpected birth. Of course, this isn't just someone who was barren. This is uh, the Virgin Mary who becomes pregnant, gives birth to Jesus, the one who was promised, the true fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. As with Isaac and Rebekah, God works through violence. He works through struggle. Jesus' birth is, is marked by Herod killing children, and his ministry is filled with opponents, so much so that they struggle throughout his ministry to the point that they will kill him in the end. And he becomes our Savior. He becomes that promised seed through violence by paying the penalty for our sin and rising to give us new life. And just as Abraham and Isaac are forefathers of faith, so too we are called to faith. We're to see Jesus as our rescuer, as the one who has come to bring order to chaos, the seed that crushes Satan and kills death, and that all who would believe in Christ become children of Abraham. Jesus is our Savior, but, but he's also our example. He, he perseveres in prayer all of his life. He is filled and lives with perfect faith. He glorifies God. And he invites us not to be perfect, but he invites us into his perfection. He says, I was perfect for you so that you don't have to be. And if you will admit that and you will come, then you will find rest. We don't need to be perfect because Jesus was. Time and pain. That's what I see here. Time and pain. They call us to faith. And they build faith in us. If you're in some long stretch of time, don't just try to get out of it. Recognize God's doing something. He's, he's building something in you. And pain. We just want to get out of pain so fast. But this pain is, is spells that God is working something in us and building faith. So let's be men and women of faith. Let's be people who persevere in prayer. It's people who in our lives, even though we can't see it, we know God is, is building faith in us and look for faith in our lives. And let's give God glory. Let's be people who admit to God that, that we don't have it all together and who admit to others that we're struggling. I invite you to do that this morning, you know. We're going to sing a song. If you want to pray with someone, if you want to pray with Joel, if you want to pray with me, if you don't want to pray with either of us, but you, someone else in here you want to pray with, let's, let's do it right now. If God is moving in your heart and saying, I am just struggling, and I want to pray with someone, and I don't want to wait till 6 o'clock tonight, then I invite you to, to just get up and, and let's pray together this morning. But we're going to sing a song after I, I close this in prayer. So let's pray. God, we fresh and anew admit that we are broken people and we need you. So Lord, build faith in us. Lord, I, uh, we, we trust you. We trust that you are doing things in us that we can't even imagine. Make us people that persevere in prayer, that trust in you. Help us to walk by faith. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.